Hi, I'm Guy Powell, and welcome to the February episode of The Backstory on Marketing. If you haven't already done so, please visit ProRelevant.com and sign up for all of these episodes and podcasts. I am the author of the upcoming book, The Post-COVID Marketing Machine, Prepare Your Team to Win. You can find more information on this at my website, marketingmachine.prorelevant.com. Today, we're speaking with Ethan Chernovsky. He is the vice president of marketing for Placer.ai. And uh, prior to Placer, he held senior marketing roles at Similar Web and Headline Media. Welcome, Ethan. Thank you so much, Guy. Great to be here. Yeah, so glad to have you. I'm uh, always really impressed with the Placer offering, and, and I just find that, that whole technology to be fascinating. But uh, before we get started, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, the genesis of how you got into marketing. Sure. So I actually kind of, my marketing career started in, in kind of public relations and the PR side of things. And originally I had want, I finished kind of grad school and I wanted to be a journalist and I had offers to, to go work at a, a couple of, a couple of outlets. And I saw how much those outlets were paying and we were pregnant with our first child. And I realized that I probably wasn't going to be a journalist. So I went to PR thinking it was the flip side of, of journalism, obviously. It's, it's far from it, but it was just this really interesting entry point into, into marketing and under getting to work with, you know, dozens of really exciting companies and understand how they approach marketing, how they view the building of brands. And then taking that, that that's kind of how my career got kicked off. Yeah, interesting. And I, I guess PR, yeah, the opposite of journalism would be maybe PR for like a politician or for a policy, yeah. whatever, or something like that. But yeah, PR in the business world is uh, definitely not journalism. <laughs> well, I don't mean to say it's not journalism, but certainly different. <laughs> it, it's a, it's, it's fascinating because I think it's your first, I mean, the really big value that comes from starting the career in, in PR is you are slapped in the face with the, rec- I guess, unless you work for like Apple or Uber, you're slapped in the face with the idea that nobody cares. And if the starting point is nobody cares, you need to figure out how to make them care. And that means telling your story in an effective way. It means really thinking about the audience of your audience. It means understanding how to create that win-win with the channel you're looking to tell your story through. And so, so many of the lessons that you learn in that PR setting are widely applicable as you kind of expand your marketing focus in these kind of in-house roles. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I mean, and in, in reality, that's what marketing is all about. And certainly geolocation services, uh, you know, makes that even better. So, uh, uh, you know, where you really then know exactly who your client is and, uh, and almost in many cases, you can almost get down to a one-to-one relationship to where you are really personalizing that message and that experience uh, specifically for that person. So it's so, it's so interesting because I think the, the geolocation space in its kind of widest reach, you have this spectrum. So on the one hand, you do have kind of companies that attempt to enable that, that one-to-one relationship and kind of location-based advertising. And in that case, think, you know, I love Starbucks. I love blueberry muffins. Uh, when I walk past a Starbucks, they want to be able to say, Ethan, get 50 cents off this blueberry muffin if you buy a coffee too. That is a really interesting kind of channel. There's a lot of value to it. It's super fascinating. It, what's, what's really interesting is how different that is from what we do, though we're part of the same space. So Placer, when you think of, when we kind of think of ourselves, 
is really a research platform. And it's enabling you to understand what's happening at a macro level at retailers across the country. So if you think like, you know, people vote with their feet, we're showing you how they vote. But we're, we, the, the, the really interesting thing is it's essentially a storytelling platform. So whereas like an advertising platform would say, again, how do I reach Ethan when he walks past the Starbucks? We're a platform that's giving you all this information about what's happening in the world. And then we're saying to the marketers that, that utilize it, okay, now that you have this information, what decisions would you make differently? How would you operate a little bit more effectively? And I think that research orientation has been really fascinating, especially as a marketer working for Placer. Well, and, and especially also, you know, you're not necessarily just getting, you know, a sample size through some survey and it's never mm. large enough. And then here, you know, you can basically say, uh, you know, hey, I did this ad and, you know, and 45% of the people that we were kind of targeting in these regions went to this, mm -hmm. went to the retail location or did something different. And then, but over here, something else happened. And that, that level of information is, uh, is incredibly valuable to a marketer as they're now really trying to always get that last half a percent, 1%, 5% better, you know, mm -hmm. and this, this kind of uh, capability reels that really allows them to do that. Yeah, I agree with you completely. I think that the fascinating thing is in so many areas, it is that incremental improvement of we're doing a really good job. We want to get a little bit better at all these elements. But in so many cases, you're, it's just a fundamental shift in how they view a process. When you think of something as simple as a trade area, right? So every retail location, every restaurant has their assumption about who they're reaching with any given location. And you know, if you think about just you know, five, six years ago, this was a circle drawn around the space and it, at a certain mile radius length and said, this is, this is what it is. This is who we reach. And when you look at the actual true trade areas within our system, you see that, you know, you see that trade area and all of its amorphous, weirdly shaped glory. And it challenges very basic assumptions about how you would operate, where you're succeeding, where you're missing an opportunity, how close by that opportunity might be, how far you're actually reaching and why. So I think this ability to provide that level of clarity and visibility, at the worst case, it's the incremental progress. But in many situations, it's, it's again, it's just bringing a lens that provides visibility that just wasn't there before. Yeah, absolutely. And certainly, uh, you know, you bring up retail trade area, but the flip side of, of that is also where do I place my stores? Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, so you also have mm -hmm. then the, the, the development side on, uh, uh, you know, for retail so that they can make sure that the traffic patterns and whatever else is really ideal for that location and for that business versus somewhere else. So uh, really, really fascinating how you can use the data. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you think about the life cycle, the entire life cycle of a retail location. I'm trying to figure out what site I want to build a shopping center in. I drop a traffic pin to understand who's passing by and what are the audiences nearby and is there an opening? And okay, then we, we decide there is, we build this center. What should, should we fill it with? Who should we, we be able to get this great anchor tenant? Who has the best cross shopping and co-tenancy patterns with that? All right, the, that center continues on. What marketing events do we want to run to help drive traffic to that center? How do the retailers within that center better leverage you know, the data to, to make these decisions? But then someone else comes in and they want to buy that center and make that decision and how to reorient it. And so the whole life cycle of 
a, lo a retail location, whether it's the shopping center, the specific retail space itself, the ability to provide value throughout this from the start to finish of that life cycle is one of the things that I think gives the platform a whole lot of power. Uh, and it gives us this really interesting viewpoint to start trying to understand what are the factors that influence success or lack thereof on a, you know, whether it's by retail segment, by retailers, you know, by a specific retailer or by region, by type, it makes it really interesting when you can get to that level of granularity. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and then not only that, but you can also see what's going on with your competitors. Mm -hmm. And so you can see, you know, what your traffic pattern is or could be. And then you can also see then, you know, there's a, there's a competitive store, you know, a mile away or in the same shopping center or wherever it is. And you can then start to see whether, you know, you're, whether their advertising or your advertising has an impact, but also then generally how, how the whole category is working. And I think that that information is so much better than what you otherwise get. So, uh, yeah. It's not even, it's the, it's all of a sudden you're able to view everything through a single lens. So one of the biggest challenges with data is having proper context. And so, you know, we say this at the time, if, if you're a retailer in a specific region and during the pandemic, your visits were down 5%. Is that good? Is that bad? That, it means nothing in and of itself. Because if I'm down 5%, but all of my competitors are down 10%, I'm doing great. If I'm down 5%, my competitors are up 20%, I'm getting crushed. And so that contextual understanding of performance and the ability to, to then go a level deeper and say, okay, why? And how do, I, how do I break this resource down in other ways to give me an indication of what are they doing well that I'm missing out on? Where are there opportunities that I might want to focus on in the future? How do I get, you know, one of the things I, I always love is when you think of a concept, we will look at a, a brand, you know, Sephora launches their store-in-store -store concept, right, with, with, uh, with Kohl's. When we look at Petco in Lowe's, we're taking that Sephora Kohl's interaction as some sort of benchmark. There's a way to learn from that experience. Mm -hmm. And that's across retail. And I think what's really fascinating is if you could learn from other people, if you could understand what competitors are doing, if you could take inspiration from sectors that you're not even operating in, that's what this product gives you the ability to do, to almost kind of transport yourself to any retail location and get that insight as if you were visiting the center itself. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I find it also uh, valuable, not only for re uh, retailers, but the manufacturers mm -hmm. that are selling in retail and so that they can see that when they run a brand ad or the retailer runs a co-op ad to see then what the, what the impact is on traffic patterns. And whether they're actually driving people to the store or not, and whether then, you know, the overall traffic goes up, maybe, you know, any ad rises, raises all boats, but it could be that my ad actually gets people into my stores or my, my retail outlets better than what the competition does. So there's also a value at the, at the manufacturer level. Mm, so, com completely. I had a colleague who put it, who put it best. Someone asked him who gets value out of placer data. And I, by the way, obviously I'm incredibly biased. I think we're the, we're the greatest platform in this space. And, you know, data in general for, this, for these spaces, I think is, it's important to kind of give that wider lens. But this colleague said, 
walk, drive down your street and how many shopping, the main road in your town, how many shopping centers do you see? All of those are customers. How many tenants do you see filling the spaces in those shopping centers? Think of all the products and services that are sold through those tenants, the people who build around it. You know, that's the, the, the people who invest in those companies, the people who, who kind of try to, the civic organizations that are attempting to attract those retailers into their, into their communities. This is the breadth that you can reach. And I think the thing that we, one of the elements that we get most excited about is that ability to establish a single language to cross those chasms between. And you know, you're bringing up the manufacturing brands is a really important one. We saw this during the pandemic. We had a customer tell us that year over year data, they would have having a discussion with a major retailer about uh, demand planning. And year over year data was kind of, you had threw it out the window because what were you supposed to do with it? The situation was so different. Yep. Their, uh, the point of sale data that they got was you know four to six weeks delay I, four to six weeks, things change so dramatically. And they were looking at visit data and correlating demand with visit data because that they could get you know, with a three-day lag. And so what's so fascinating is in a changing environment, what we've seen in the last two years is just this rapidly changing scenario where you need to adapt so quickly. If you, I think data helps in any situation, but if you don't have data to help you make those decisions and pivot as effectively as possible, you're going to be over-reliant on guesses and it's, it's going to put you at risk. Yeah, absolutely. And, and especially nowadays, if somebody, if your competitor has the tool and you don't, they are absolutely at an advantage and they, and I don't know how much difference it would be, but it's, it can be significant you know, for retailers. Now, what about other industries? Uh, where else would you see the use of, uh, of this kind of data? So I think, I think retail is the, the, the primary space, but it's all the, the spheres of retail. So again, the shopping center, the retail real estate, the manufacturing companies, the investors, the civic organizations. And so just that is quite a sizable group of companies. Yeah. When you think also office real estate, you know, if I'm dealing with multifamily at a large scale, this is going to be interesting data. Just understanding the shifts in areas. So <clears throat> take something as simple as migration patterns and how different they've been as a result of the pandemic. So really interesting data that we've seen, but also from other sources like Urban Digs, which looks at uh, leasing patterns in New York City. And you found at certain points during the pandemic, there was this really fascinating shift of people who were a little bit older, maybe had stuck around in major cities a little bit longer than they would have traditionally <clears throat> moving to the suburbs and that being replaced by younger people who could now afford to move into the city. And what's really interesting here is if I understand those patterns and those shifts on an area level, I can identify opportunity. So Raleigh, North Carolina, great proximity to amazing universities. People want to can choose flexibility and therefore emphasize an area with a higher quality of life. They don't have to spend as much living in, let's say, San Francisco. They can stay there and still find a really high quality tech job. And that understanding of where those shifts are happening, where that opportunity might exist, is a really powerful lens that can be used to make much better decisions for the companies who are operating at that scale. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, very interesting. I didn't think about the, uh, you know, the, the patterns of how people changed and where they moved to and from during the pandemic versus pre-pandemic and now mm -hmm. maybe, you know, post-pandemic. So uh, that, makes a, that makes a lot of sense. So um, if I'm a retailer and let's say mm -hmm. I'm, I don't know, Lowe's or maybe that's not a good example, but if I'm a major retailer and got uh, stores around the country, what, what is their ROI? So what, what's the ROI on your data? What is the value for them? What is, it's got to be pretty big. Uh, what, what is it? So it's going to be different values for different groups of the company. So in the ideal scenario, your site selection team is using the product to figure out where should we put the next store, try to understand which stores are performing well and which ones aren't. I need to right size because I'm overextended in a certain region. Which store do I remove? Do I remove the store that has the highest sales, the lowest sales, or do I move the store that's cannibalizing the most? And by removing it, I'd have the least impact on an overall market. How do I understand performance over time? How do I understand it compared to kind of the key competitors? And that takes us already into kind of that competitive intelligence strategy team. How do I, am I really understanding my performance? So if we try a new initiative, if we how we're doing overall, how is the wider space we're operating in again over, doing overall? So think for, you know, Lowe's is a great example. Lowe's, Home Depot, Tractor Supply, setting the world on fire in 2020. 2021, a lot of those months, visits are down year over year, but it's not because they did bad. It's because they just went so high that, that when they dropped back, they were still higher than they were before. But the only way to understand that is by having a context for the entire market. Then as a marketer, I want to do other things. I want to know how different campaigns worked in different regions. I want to understand the impact of my competitors' campaigns and what's, what's moving the needle there and understanding how do I figure out which types of activities are really moving the needle for my organization. So this ability to go from that market planning, site selection, real estate team to the store operations team, to the strategy team, to the marketing team, and enable all of them to have that conversation with the same data. That's one of the biggest pieces. And I mean, I'm not telling you anything that's going to surprise you, but one of the biggest challenges with, with data is that even within an organization, many of us are using different tools. And so I say I'm seeing X percentage change based on this tool. And they say, well, I don't see that. I see something totally different with my tool. So the idea that you have a language that can help traverse those divides and can be used by all these organizations, I think that's almost, you know, as valuable as anything. You know, we were talking, you know, before the show about, you know, different places in the world and different languages. If you put a, you know, a German speaker, a French speaker, you know, an Italian speaker and a, someone who speaks Japanese in the same room and ask them to do a collective task, it's going to be a lot harder than if everyone's speaking German or English or whatever it may be. And I think that's one of the things we view as a huge long-term value is that ability to have that single language. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, uh, way back when, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with the Kodak brand and Kodak <laughs> film and stuff like that. And I remember talking to the, uh, to the VP of research and he said, uh, you know, what's really bad and what he tried to do uh, within the company is have a, a benchmark and a language that everybody can use so that if everybody gets their bonus, the CEO also gets his bonus. 
because he said what had happened is everybody made their numbers. They all, you know, figured out how to game the system. And the CEO says, well, yeah, but sales went down. Where's my money? And so to your point about using the common language across the company is critical because it has to then be something that really aligns exactly with your uh, corporate, uh, co with your corporate objectives. And if it doesn't, mm. if you're measuring the wrong thing, then, you, you know, garbage in, garbage out, it's going to be, it's not going to be helpful for anybody. Yeah, I think, I think company alignment, you know, I can, you know, it's interesting. I, so I, I joined this company when we were 20 some odd people today, we're well over 300 and the, the strength you get as an organization, when you are viewing the world as a unit and not as lots of disparate elements all pulling in different directions is, is a huge asset. For us, it's a credit to our leadership and you know, to the you know, people, the founders and those who had that initial vision were able to pull all of us into that vision. And I think it, it's, it's anywhere. The more you can create alignment in how you're viewing the world, the better you'll be able to mm. attack it as a, as, a, as a group. Yep, yep, absolutely. Absolutely. So um, uh, now, of course, then there's the uh, all this kind of privacy and legislation coming out. Mm -hmm. uh, tell us how Placer fits in that, and what do you see kind of as the future for uh, for those discussions? So I think again, we and we we kind of touched on this at the top of this of this spectrum of companies and what you're trying to do. So you can you can almost think of it as as relating to to three core questions. What type of data do you take in? What type of data do you show? And what type of data do you make money off of? So again, partially because this was it's a key part of our ethos, but also, you know, we're a company that, you know, we only launched in 2018. So GDPR was already a thing. CCPA was already a thing. So we're a privacy by design company, meaning we don't ingest any personally identifiable information into our system. So we don't take in any personal information. We certainly don't show anything in our platform. When you build in processes to ensure that, you know, any place under a certain number of people, you don't show on the platform at all. And so you create these built-in limitations so as to account for privacy. And then all we sell is our estimations. And so that's the, that's the product ultimately. And in that way, we make sure that we're aligned with privacy interests. And I think what you want to ultimately see in the space is two things. One, regulation that makes sense for the different players within the space. So if I'm, if I want, again, to do that location-based advertising, which means I want to know where Ethan is right now. Okay. But then there should be a very specific set of regulations and opt-ins and the like, and the same for research companies, you know, that we need to be treated in a very specific way to ensure that our practices are in line with user interests. And I think the more sophisticated we get about this conversation, the better regulations we're going to come to, the better products we're going to build. But I also think it's, it's unbelievably important to the simplicity that happens in the privacy debate. is not very helpful because it misses out on the levels of nuance and what the fact that there is so much opportunity to find that win-win where you can provide the value without having to infringe on privacy. Yeah. And, uh, I, and I agree with that. Of course, I'm in marketing and I, I think that I think that advertising messages have a value and people are interested in them because at, at the end of the day, they are going to buy something and it's much better to have them more well-informed so that they're going to have a better customer experience and they're going to be more satisfied with what they buy as opposed to buying something that, they, that may not fit. So 
marketing mm. to some extent is is also about education and uh, so i think you know getting that stuff right is is critical but it's also what's the value ultimately if yeah. you think um all right think about sears sears wasn't a stupid company they were incredibly successful they were overextended and therefore it was really challenging to have to make the moves as quickly as they needed to in order to adjust what if sears had been able to right size their properties more slowly over time with data like this. They're likely still around today. Look at Macy's or JCPenney, companies who are amidst these more significant right-sizing projects. And they're doing so really strategically. And that means that more Macy's are staying open, serving their audiences, Mm -hmm. keeping the people who have jobs there going, paying rent to the shopping centers that they're sitting in. It's a net positive, but even think about the small business. So, Guy, imagine you and I, we decide to open our own pizza chain. And we open up our first one in Atlanta, Georgia, right? And we open up our second one in a suburb of Atlanta, Georgia, and we're, we're, we're doing well with both. It's time to open up number three, and we're choosing between three locations. The problem is, if we get it right, great. If we get it wrong for a business as small as ours, it's going to have a massive impact on our company. It might even close it. So the fact that we can, we can have access to affordable data, not just something that Pizza Hut and Domino's can use, but us and our small pizza chain can use, increases the likelihood that we can go from one store to three stores to 10 to 50. And that ability to kind of support that 50 to 100 location chain, the smaller ones even than that, creates this much greater diversity, this much better ability of smaller businesses to grow and scale and to do so in a sustainable way creates a net benefit for the wider economic situation as well. Yeah, absolutely. And fair enough. I, uh, uh, you know, I, you're, you went more on the research side, which absolutely has value and, Mm -hmm. uh, and, and definitely see that because, uh, you know, here you have an investor uh, as, as me, the pizza owner and you and the pizza owner here in, in Atlanta and if we are able to make those decisions better, we are going to be able to hire more people. And mm-hmm. also, you know, that, that is a benefit not only to those people, but to the customers that are interested in what we're selling. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, yeah, that, that, uh, that makes a lot of sense. And it's interesting. I, I like the, the other point that you make is that you're more on the research side as opposed to the execution side. And I think that's mm-hmm. a very uh, different or a very interesting distinguishing uh, characteristic in terms of what you're offering versus what you what you might typically see as geolocation services in mm-hmm. optimizing my advertising and, and getting them these these kind of unwanted or maybe not so wanted uh, commercials or believed to be unwanted commercials. Yeah, I think we need to we need to empower the consumer. I mean, this was you know to talk in our kind of advertising marketing language. How this wasn't all that long ago. We we're having a big conversation about. Uh, native native advertising. And there were some people who were like, this is the worst thing that's ever happened in the world. And others who were like, this is the greatest. The reality was somewhere in between, but we need to take the steps to ensure that consumers, <laughs> users, viewers, readers are given enough information so that they understand what's happening in front of them. And may- they can make those decisions, you know, and that native advertising conversation you know, look, we've been looking at editorial content for years. We didn't ban it because it's an opinion. We said, we have to make it clear that it's an opinion, but that's okay. We can consume opinion too. So I think if we focus on end user empowerment, giving them easy access to the tools to make the decisions to opt in and out of what they do and don't want, 
Um, but also that they understand what they're seeing. I think we're going to end up in a much better situation than, assemb- than attempting to create kind of blanket uh, restrictions that, mm-hmm. that don't necessarily make sense and most people probably don't want. Yeah, well, and, un- and unfortunately, uh, on legislation and regulation, it's, uh, it has to do then also with the education of the, the legislators mm-hmm. and the regulators so that they really can understand the difference and, then, and the value that's, that's behind there. Because I think you're right. I mean, some of these, some of these uh, proposed legislation and you know, they're kind of like, hey, we're going to block everything. And, and that really doesn't, uh, just doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and absolutely. So um, let's talk about the future. Where, where <sighs> and how or what do you see as uh, the, uh, the promised land in three or four years from now for Placer? I think the, there is a couple of things. I think there's three pillars. Pillar number one is continuing to build out our own platform, right? So how do we continue adding features, uh, creating simpler workflows? So I have a specific business question. Here's the tool that helps you answer that specific question as quickly as possible, right? So to Put, empower our users to, to get from point A to point B faster than ever before and to give them more ways, you know, more point A's and point B's to get to. <laughs> the second level is a big focus on what we kind of our marketplace, which is our marketplace brings in other data sources. So like demographics data into the platform so that they can be layered on top of our platform and more easily accessed and utilized. And so this investment in how do we expand the number of perspectives that we can bring into play so that we can understand a space and any something that's happening in the physical world more effectively. So a simple example, traffic is down uh, year over year in a certain space. What if I showed you that there was a massive storm that day and that's why it was down? All of a sudden you have more information to get to that decision understanding faster. If I show you a place and I show you the crime rates around it, and I show you planned developments that are happening, and I show you drive time analysis, and I show all of these other layers, it's only going to enrich your ability to make better decisions based off of the data. So that's a huge focus for us as well. So enhancing our capacity, partnering with more companies that enable to bring in all these new perspectives into the mix. So we have this wider view on what's happening. And I'd say the, the, the last bit is is a constant effort to improve those areas that are the pillar of what we do. So how do we get ever better on the data accuracy side? So if we're, if we feel like, you know, we've got a 5% margin of error, how do we get it to four and a half percent, 4%, et cetera? How do we get better at partnering with our customers? So understanding their needs better, being more as invested as we can be at scale. <laughs> And then the accessibility piece, how do we make it as simple to use? I think one of the things that always is ever present, especially when you talk to more experienced professionals, is they'll look at a platform like this and they'll be like, oh, this is great, but you know, ah, I never know how to use this. This is too complicated for me. And we, we very aggressively push back on this concept. I think, you know, you learning to utilize data and there's always going to be space for, for, you know, consultants and those who under data science teams and those who really get it internally and externally. But we, the more we teach people to become familiar and to engage with and to show that actually we're kind of constantly dealing with data every single day of our lives. And most of us are using it quite effectively. 
that level of engagement is just going to increase that conversation that we were talking about before, which is going to make the wider ecosystem for data so much more effective. Yeah, no question about it. And uh, in, in our business, uh, uh, more data, accurate data, vetted data, complete mm -hmm. data is always better than less. <laughs> and, uh, and I like your point uh, where you are you know, bringing in more pieces to help uh, either you know, all your clients or this potentially you know, some very specific ones so that they can make those data-driven data decisions better and be able to place that, you know, that, pizza, <laughs> that pizza joint, that third pizza joint in Atlanta significantly better. Because uh, that that's what everybody wants. I mean, if I'm going to invest in data, and I'm going to pay, you know, whatever it is, I want to make sure I'm getting a return on it. And I want to, in, a, in, in an ideal scenario, I want to be able to use it in as many places as I can and, and, uh, and be able to take as good a value as I can in each one of those different, uh, you know, operational or uh, operational areas that, that might be uh, where it might be valuable. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think one of the things we talk about quite a bit is this the the kind of the the nice to have and you hear this as a vendor very often if you've ever worked if you've ever kind of worked with or a technology company you'll talk to a company and they'll ask you well are you a need or are you a nice to have and i i have increasingly increasingly resent the question because if you look at retail specifically look at target and walmart in the midst of the pandemic they had grocery delivery, buy online, pick up in store, curbside pickup, stuff that they were able to roll out instantly. They didn't make it up now. They had been investing in these capabilities for years and years prior, having a sense of where retail was going and what they would need. And essentially, they were constantly investing in the nice to have. Where is the future? Because if it's a need, you're too late. You should have been investing in this before. And I think the more we educate, whether it's retailers, technology companies, whoever else, marketers, operations, you know, market planning, learning to live in the nice to have is how you stay ahead of the curve. Yeah, and actually there is a really good article. I'll have to send it to you uh, from on Steph Curry. And, <sighs> um, and it sounds like you may have seen it, but uh, the article is just, it's he... His goal is to do much, much, much better on getting three pointers, and he practices. Mm -hmm. But he is he practices so that he gets uh, his margin of error is down to into like the one or two inches. He could be three or four <laughs> inches off, but he wants to get his margin of error on that basketball going through the hoop by only yeah. one or two inches. And what's interesting is uh, to your nice to haves versus your need to haves is that the top performers think of things like that as a need to have, because I have to keep getting better. And, mm -hmm. and, and I can't just stay the same. I have to get better mm -hmm. and better. He has to get like, you know, a millimeter, a millimeter, a millimeter on average better. And the best performers realize that that, that want to have is not a want to have, it is a need to have, because they, they have to then stay the, ahead of the game. And, mm -hmm. uh, and so then I think you're right. I think placer is one of those things. It's not a, it's not a, you know, a nice to have, it is a need to have uh, for, for exactly those reasons. No, I, I think you, I love, I love this Steph Curry example, you know, even it's interesting. I was having a conversation about this with another marketer of, if you think of the brilliance of 
of the Warriors is they built a team around something that used to be nice side role players. So three-point shooting, I think Steph Curry's dad, great three-point shooter. He was a wonderful role player alongside some great players who were the main pieces. Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, these three-point shooters became the core of a strategy. And they said, all right, how do we build around this strength? And I think increasingly what we want to see in retail, but this applies to any business, is understanding what are your strengths? What are the things you do really well? How do you measure those things? How do you kind of measure improvements? But how do you build around those strengths? The fact, you know, it's interesting, one of, the, one of the most fascinating conversations we've had in the retail space is off-price retail and omni-channel. I think where we were in uh, 2020, Burlington stores closed their e-commerce site. A month later, the pandemic hits. Every article was basically like, Burlington, you morons. You are so out of touch. Say goodbye to Burlington. Within a year, Burlington's numbers are higher than they've ever been. They're crushing. They're one of the best performing retailers in this space. And the takeaway isn't that e-commerce is bad or omnichannel is bad. It's just that Burlington e-commerce shouldn't be Macy's e-commerce or Target e-commerce or Amazon. It should be Burlington e-commerce. And the more companies utilize data, their data, other people's data to understand who they are and what they should be in their market, that's where success comes. Take Amazon as well. Look at Amazon's grocery push. Amazon buys Whole Foods. Is it the greatest success we've ever seen? Probably not. Did it help define Amazon, Amazon Go and Amazon Fresh, which are proving to be far more Amazon-ish in their nature and likely a better long-term solution for what they want to provide? Absolutely. Mm. And so this ability to kind of understand yourself, test things, but build around your core, build around your strength, that's what's going to drive a lot of great things in the retail space. Yeah, absolutely. And even Walmart's acquisition of Jet initially <laughs> was, uh, I don't know, whether, but uh, they certainly have uh, been able to uh, get their e-commerce going. And I think mm -hmm. they are going to give Amazon, as hard as it is, they are going to give Amazon a good run for the money on the on the e-commerce side. Completely. We, I mean, I love the, the, the uh, Walmart Jet example to me is incredible because it is, was the acquisition successful? If you just judge the acquisition of Jet, probably not. Did it make Walmart amazing at e-commerce? Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that that's a company that you know we don't always think of as being super innovative, but constantly investing and trying to figure out what their future looks like. And that's why they are still such a massive retail giant. That's why we even think of them as capable of competing with Amazon. It's because of that investment and that focus on innovation. Well, and, and that's kind of where, the, where Steph Curry's example comes in. It's the best, always striving to do uh, slightly better. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but anyway, uh, before we close, uh, is there any one big message that you'd uh, like to get across? I'd love to keep talking to you because I think there's really <laughs> good stuff, but at some point we have to close. So is there any one big message that you'd otherwise like to get, get across? I think the, the data accessibility and the data conversation, we need to start embracing that everyone in the organization needs to access data. And the more we do that, the more great ideas we're gonna come up with, the better we're gonna be able to embrace data in the future and the better decisions we're gonna make. Yeah, and I agree with that. Um, you know, Data transparency and data, data is, uh, 
is like a liquid and if it gets across to everywhere then uh, that that is that is ideal and and i think to your point that using the same data across the entire organization really really uh, makes a lot of sense so unfortunately i do have to close this out but ethan uh thank you uh, really so much thank you thank you it's been awesome i you know I, i'm a definite fan of the of this uh, of the data and the research uh, components that you that you provide and uh, and it certainly helped to educate me and hopefully uh, you know the audience will also see the same thing so uh, in in any case then um, please visit placer.ai placer.ai and there you'll find a lot more information on how you can use this geocentric data to your advantage especially in retail but there's certainly many many other applications and then lastly, please stay tuned for many other videos in this series on the backstory of marketing. Please visit marketingmachine.prorelevant.com slash getting started. It's a mouthful, but marketingmachine.prorelevant.com slash getting started. So Ethan, thank you so much. Thank you guys so much fun to do this. Thank you.